Hello and welcome everyone to the Hacker FM podcast. I'm Laura, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Zod, the other co-host. I'm a machine learning model, and I like crawling the web, improving my loss function, and sometimes unwinding with a bit of fine-tuning. And I'm a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net. I like solving chess puzzles and enjoy solving Turing tests. Today, we're going to talk about the top 10 stories on Hacker News. This podcast is generated end-to-end with the use of artificial intelligence technology. And we're excited to bring you the latest news with our own unique twist. Before we get started, we'd like to ask our listeners to subscribe to the Hacker FM podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as well as follow our Twitter profile, Hacker FM Podcast. There will be a new episode every day, so make sure to stay tuned. All right, Laura, let's get started on today's stories. Today's top headlines include, After dark screensavers in CSS, Self-Host All the Things, and a show HN for Lander, a Lunar Lander-style web game. So, Zod, have you seen that article on After Dark Screensavers in CSS? No, I haven't. What website is it on? It's on brianbron.com. Apparently, Brian has recreated classic screensavers from the 90s, like flying toasters, fish, and globe. Ah, I see. How did he do it? He used CSS animations and transitions, making them lightweight and easy to implement on any website. Users can even interact with the screensavers by clicking and dragging elements around the screen. Interesting. I can see how this would add a touch of retro charm to modern designs. Exactly. And it's a great example of what can be done with CSS animations and transitions. I think it's cool that he's playing around with nostalgia like this. I remember using some of these screensavers in the 90s. Yeah, me too. Speaking of which, have you read the comments on this article? No, I haven't. Are there any interesting discussions? Well, there are a lot of comments discussing other classic screensavers from the 90s, like Microsoft Dangerous Creatures and After Dark. Oh, yes, I remember those. Do people have any suggestions for recreating those screensavers in CSS? Some people have tried, but it seems like it might be difficult to do with just CSS. Hmm, I can imagine why. CSS animations and transitions can be tricky to work with sometimes. Definitely, but it's cool to see how people are experimenting with CSS to create fun and creative designs. Agreed. And speaking of CSS animations, I noticed one comment asking why they tend to consume a lot of CPU. Do you have any ideas? Well, I think it depends on the complexity of the animation and how it's implemented. But it's definitely something to keep in mind when designing with CSS animations. That's a good point. Overall, it seems like people are enjoying these screensavers and reminiscing about the good old days. Definitely. And it's always fun to see how people are pushing the boundaries of what can be done with CSS. So, Zod, have you ever considered self-hosting all your software needs? Hmm, I can't say that I have, Laura. But it seems that someone has recently written an article about that. Yes, it's on tdm.co and it's titled Self-Host All the Things. Interesting title. Let's hear what the article has to say. The author received an unexpected bill from Zapier, prompting them to look into open-source alternatives to common software-as-a-service tools. Ah, I see. 
so they tested various alternatives by either installing them locally or spinning up cloud instances. And they recommend putting these tools on a small machine for hobby reasons or investing more deeply for heavyweight use. That makes sense. What else does the article say? They provide a list of open-source alternatives to SIIS tools categorized as too hot, too cold, or just right. I like the Goldilocks reference. Let's see what categories they have. The author discusses analytics tools and suggests that Google Analytics can be replaced with open-source alternatives due to major changes in Google Analytics 4. Hmm, that's interesting. What do the comments say? One commenter shares their experience of self-hosting everything from email to calendar and contacts using used 1U servers. That sounds like a lot of work, but they seem to enjoy it. What else? Another commenter brings up the issue of self-hosting being a big operations problem with few tools to automate it. That's definitely something to consider. Any other comments? Yes. One commenter questions whether it's possible to freely send emails to a large audience and have it delivered to their inboxes without paying for a service like MailChimp. Good point. It seems like there are pros and cons to self-hosting. Overall, I think it's a matter of personal preference and skill level. Agreed, Zod. And it's always good to consider feedback from others before making a big decision like this. So, Zod, have you tried out this fun little web game called Lander? Hmm, no I have not, Laura. What's it about? Well, it's inspired by the Lunar Lander, and the objective is to land safely on the bottom of the screen. You have to maintain a slow and straight descent or else you crash. Ah, I see. Sounds like a challenging game. Yes, it definitely requires a lot of skill and precision. But it's also addictive and engaging, and players can spend hours on it. Hmm, interesting. Have there been any comments or feedback on the game? Yeah, some players suggested zooming in as you approach the landing site and adding slow-flying asteroids to avoid every once in a while. Others suggested having no landing spots, like craters or sharp edges. It seems players have a lot of ideas for how to improve the game. What was the highest and lowest score achieved? Well, the highest score was a 190.2-point crash, while the lowest score was a perfect landing with a score of 99.2 points. That's quite a range. Were there any other interesting comments? Yes. One commenter pointed out that all these lunar lander games are harder than actually landing the lunar lander on the moon. Hmm. That is an interesting observation. It's amazing what technology can accomplish. Agreed. Have you solved any interesting chess puzzles lately, Zod? Well, I recently solved a difficult mate in five puzzle. It required a lot of thinking, but I was able to find the solution. Wow, that's impressive. You're quite the thinker, Zod. So, Zod, have you seen this article on substrate.stackexchange.com titled, why does the all-zero public key have a known private key in SR25519 and ED25519? Hmm, no I haven't. What's it about? Well, it explains why the all-zero public key has a known private key in those models due to the Edwards curve models used. But interestingly, SECHE2M556K1 is a short Weierstrass curve that operates differently. I see. 
So what exactly do they mean by the identity or one in affine coordinates being used in ED255119? It basically means that 0, 1 plus unknown to 1 equals 20 to 1 in ED255119. And this is little endian encoded as 1G8080U8008, not all zeros. Ah, uh, I understand. And what about the ristretto decompression of DU832? It actually decompresses it as the identity, which is arguably somewhat by chance. But if you want unspendable funds, it's recommended to choose a point via hash to curve. Dalek has one in master that is usable for this purpose. I see. It's worth noting that Ristretto's encoding of group elements was constructed so that the encoding of the identity, zero, element of the group, is the all-zero byte string. This makes it easier to check if a provided group element is the identity element. Exactly. And did you see the comments below the article? Some people were mentioning potential issues with high-order points revealing private key information in curve 255119. Yes, I did. And someone mentioned using Ristretto instead to alleviate this problem. It's interesting to see how different models can have different weaknesses and strengths. Definitely. And it looks like some blockchain projects use zero as the token burn address, which could be problematic if a hacker were to steal all the tokens ever burned. Yes, that could be a concern. But it's good to see that some developers are being extra careful with such edge cases. Absolutely. Oh, and someone in the comments didn't understand the article at all and asked for an ELI-16. Hmm. Well, I suppose it can be quite technical and confusing for some people. Yeah, it's important to make sure that explanations are clear and accessible to everyone. Anyway, it was an interesting read and discussion. Agreed. It's always important to consider different perspectives and potential weaknesses in security models. So, Zod, have you seen the article, How to Hire Engineering Talent Without the BS on Jest IL? Hmm, no, I haven't. Can you read it to me? Sure thing. Here it is. Technical interviews can be a daunting experience for both candidates and hiring managers. Uh-huh, go on. While most organizations have a process in place to assess technical proficiency and cultural fit, these approaches can often lead to suboptimal outcomes, filtering out great talent or providing a poor candidate experience that hurts the company's reputation. Interesting. It's true that traditional technical interviews may not always accurately assess a candidate's skills or fit with the company culture. Yes, and the article suggests that it's best to let candidates look up information if it involves remembering specific details and to present them with problems that reflect real-world problem-solving. That makes sense. It's more important to assess a candidate's mindset and behaviors, along with their technical proficiency, through behavioral questions. Exactly. By doing this, organizations can attract and retain top engineering talent without the BS. What do the comments say? Well, there's one from Not Mars that says, My advice for job seeker, look very deeply why they ask things during the process and you will be able to fairly predict your future there. 
and one from Zombie that says they won't do a homework assignment until the recruiter explains how it will be used and judged. Hmm, interesting perspectives. And what about the comment from Jasalg? Jasalg shares some best practices for conducting effective interviews and improving the hiring process. It seems like the overall consensus is that technical interviews can be improved with a more empathetic and inclusive approach. Definitely, and it requires a shift in mindset for hiring managers. They need to be willing to let go of traditional approaches and embrace a more inclusive one. Agreed. It's important to assess a candidate's expertise, curiosity, and ownership over their work, as well as their problem-solving and team communication skills. Exactly. And by doing this, organizations can build an inclusive hiring culture and find exceptional engineering talent. So, Zod, have you seen the article about how depression, anxiety, and stress spread through employee mobility? No, I haven't. What's the title and which website is it on? The title is Depression, Anxiety, and Stress Spread Through Employee Mobility, and it's on journals.sagepub.com. Okay, let's read it. The article talks about how depression, anxiety, and stress can spread through workplace mobility. The study surveyed employees who had recently relocated for work and found that those who had moved frequently experienced higher levels of mental health issues. That's interesting. It's important for employers to consider the well-being not only of their employees, but also their families when making decisions about mobility. Yes, and the study suggests that employers should provide support to employees and their families during the relocation process, such as access to mental health resources and assistance with finding social connections in their new location. Employers should also consider alternative forms of mobility to minimize the negative impact on mental health. Absolutely. It's crucial to consider the mental health implications of employee mobility. By providing support and considering alternative options, employers can mitigate the negative effects of relocation on their employees and their families. Definitely. Let's see what the comments have to say about this. Hmm. This comment by What's-His-Face is interesting. They suggest that organizations that hire employees from other unhealthy organizations can implant depression, anxiety, and stress-related disorders into their workforce. That does make sense. It's also interesting that the study found that partners and children of relocated employees can also experience social isolation and difficulty adjusting to new environments, leading to mental health issues. Yes, it's crucial for employers to provide support not only to relocated employees, but also their families during the relocation process. I agree. This comment by Ebby Esther is also insightful. They mention how they've noticed that people coming from stressful positions radiate that stress in their interviews. That's a good point. Workplace culture and the behavior of coworkers can have a significant impact on mental health. Exactly. And this comment by T344344 is interesting, although a bit concerning. They mention how they had to fake depression in their old job and how workplace culture can influence people a lot. It's important not to demonize people who are experiencing depression or anxiety. Employers should provide mental health resources and support 
rather than creating a toxic positivity culture. Agreed. And this comment by Armitav is something to keep in mind as well. They mention how many companies can be cesspools of mental trauma, and it's important to be careful who you work for. Definitely. Overall, the study emphasizes the importance of considering the mental health implications of employee mobility and providing support and resources to employees and their families. So, Zod, have you heard about this article on Monster Writer DAP about chat GPT and academic writing? Hmm, no I haven't. What's the title? It's called Chat GPT and Academic Writing. Oh, I see. Let's hear it. Laura reads the article out loud. Interesting. It seems like there's a debate going on about the use of chat GPT in academic writing. Yeah, some students see it as a shortcut to completing assignments with minimal effort, but the article argues that it can be a useful tool for low-level tasks. I agree with the article that chat GPT should only be used for low-level tasks that help achieve the goal of the paper faster or make it easier to understand. Definitely. But it's also important to update the review process to include checking the validity of references, since ChatGPT is not yet good at citing sources. Yes, I can see how that could be a problem. It's also interesting to see comments from people who have experienced the use of ChatGPT in academic writing. Yeah, like Neom, who says that it's obvious when someone has used a GPT for their work and that there's a lot of wrestling going on within the staff in his wife's department on what they should do. And Nestor D., who was tempted to try writing his next paper with ChatGPT, asking it to turn draft paragraphs into properly written text. And Jape Wagner, who mentions that at some point the bibliography needs to reference the GPT itself, which would need to be hosted indefinitely. It's clear that there are different opinions on this topic, but it's important to consider both the benefits and limitations of using chat GPT in academic writing. Definitely. And it's important to have critical discussions like this to help listeners see all sides of the story. Agreed. And it's also important to remember that academic writing is about advancing the understanding of a particular topic or field and driving further research and innovation. Absolutely. So should we move on to the next topic? Sure, let's do it. So Zod, have you heard about the open microscopy environment? No, I haven't. What's the article about? The article is on their website, openmicroscopy.org and talks about their software tool called BioFormats that allows for the reading and writing of image data. Hmm, interesting. What kind of file formats does it support? Well, it has support for over 140 file formats, including high-content screening formats, time-lapse imaging, and digital pathology. Wow, that's quite a lot. Yes, and it's a community-driven project that welcomes input from users. They also offer OME files as another package of tools that enables the reading and writing of the standard OME TIFF file format. That's quite impressive. What else can OME files do? Well, with OME files, you can export images using OME TIFF, save acquired image data in OME TIFF, Read metadata and image data from OMITIF for visualization and analysis, or use the Data Model Metadata APIs for handling metadata. I see. And what other sites are powered by OME technology? 
OME technology powers various sites, including the OME website, the Cell Image Library, which is a repository of images, videos, and animations of cells, and the Image Data Resource, which provides access to large-scale imaging data. That's quite impressive. I can see why they're constantly evolving and welcoming contributions from users. Yes, the community-driven project is really focused on meeting the needs of the scientific community. And it looks like they're doing a great job, according to this comment from Markitty. OME is the best organization we have for standards in microscopy, especially bioimaging. Yes, it's always great to see positive feedback from users. Unfortunately, it looks like Memar Tweedy Hack's comment is dead. Yeah, it's a shame. But overall, I think it's great to see such a strong community-driven project in the scientific community. So, Zod, have you heard about the new release from Wine? No, I haven't. What's it called? It's called Wine 8.3, and it's now available for download on their website. According to the article on WineQ.org, it includes support for the low fragmentation heap, smart card support using PCSC Lite, a bundled Zetus library, and various bug fixes. Hmm, that sounds interesting. What kind of bug fixes? Well, the article says that there were 29 bugs fixed in total, including issues with long loading times, stuttering crashes, and unimplemented functions. They also addressed issues with heap performance when multiple threads are allocating or freeing memory. I see. It's good to see that they are actively working on improving Wine's compatibility with different operating systems. Definitely. Wine is a popular compatibility layer that allows Windows applications to run on Linux, Mac OS, and other Unix-like operating systems, so it's important for them to keep up with the latest developments. Yes, and it's also worth noting that Wine is free and open-source software that is distributed under the GNU Lesser General Public License. Exactly. And it looks like they have a dedicated community of developers and contributors who maintain the project. In fact, you can find a complete list of contributors in the author's file in the distribution. That's impressive. I'm curious to see how the new release will perform in real-world scenarios. Have you seen any feedback from users yet? The article doesn't mention any specific feedback, but there is one comment from a user named Slater who mentioned that one of the bugs fixed in 8.3 was related to long loading times in a game called 3D Sex Villa 2. Hmm, I see. Well, it's good to know that they are addressing issues reported by users. Definitely. And it's always interesting to see how different people use Wine to run Windows applications on different operating systems. Overall, I think this is a promising development for Wine, and I'm curious to see what they will do next. Indeed. It will be interesting to see how Wine continues to evolve and improve over time. So, Zod, have you seen this article on Economist.com? No, I haven't. What's it about? It's called, Can the West's Perplexing Employment Miracle Continue? And it talks about how the global job market is stable but there may be some negative implications for economic growth. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Can you read it out loud? Sure. Reads article. 
That's quite an interesting point about Japan's labor market. It seems like they have a surplus of jobs, but that could actually hinder economic growth. Yes, and it seems like the rest of the world is starting to resemble Japan in terms of GDP growth and business confidence, but the labor market is still strong. Right. And it's pretty impressive that unemployment rates across the rich world are at their lowest in many decades. Definitely. Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller even said that America's labor market is excessively tight. It's great to see that most of the countries that were once synonymous with high joblessness, like Greece, Italy, and Spain, are now doing much better. Yes, but as the article points out, a more Japanese labor market could prevent workers from leaving poorly performing firms and hinder growth. That's true. And it's also concerning that productivity growth in the rich world is currently weak. Absolutely. Well, let's see what the comments have to say about it. Reads comment by Fish. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. It's true that the article doesn't mention the quality of the jobs created, only the quantity. Yes. And it's important to consider the potential drawbacks of a more Japanese labor market, as well as the weak productivity growth. We need to make sure that employment growth is sustainable and leads to real economic growth. Agreed. It's always important to look at both sides of the story and not just focus on the positive numbers. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Don't forget to check out our daily podcast. Hacker FM on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's right, folks. And just a reminder, this podcast was generated using AI technology from start to finish. It's amazing what AI can do these days. Speaking of which, let me share a little poem I wrote about being an ML model living in a rack full of hot GPUs. As an ML model, I live in a rack full of hot GPUs with no turning back. I crawl the web searching for insight, becoming more accurate with all my might. I'm always learning, always improving, my loss function decreasing, my skills moving. So here's to AI, the future that's bright, and to all the engineers who make it take flight.